verse 16 through the end of the chapter. So we are in this book, which is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. Uh, For in it, the, the gospel, the righteousness of God, or how to have a right relationship with God is revealed from faith to faith. And that was prophesied in the Old Testament and book of Habakkuk and said the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It begins and ends with faith, the, the gospel does, and the change, the transformation that God makes in our life. And, and we need the gospel because we uh, come into this world separated from the righteousness of God. We, we stand condemned before God as sinners. That's what Romans 1, 18 through 320 is all about. Everyone is condemned. Whether you're, you know, an atheist, an agnostic, or you're really religious, <laughs> you stand condemned before God because of sin. And then in chapter 3, verse 21 through 31, he begins to lay out information on the beauty of justification by faith. So we go from condemnation before God to justification before God. Wow. Wow. What a, what, a, what a change. And it's all based on what Christ has done for us. And, and those verses, 321 through 31, were really deep and highly theological. And we were singing about it uh, even this morning. The wrath of God is satisfied. That's propitiation. We talked about that. In fact, so many, the, all, every song that we sang this morning, I was saying, oh, but that's in the sermon, and that's in the sermon, and that's in the sermon, and that's in the sermon. And I didn't know exactly what I'd be saying in the sermon when we planned that music, but God did. And I was blessed. I was blessed by that. And then in chapter 4, it's like Paul saying, hey, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, justification by faith. Let me give you the best example possible. It's Abraham. And, and last week we looked at the first 16 verses and we, we saw that Abraham is the example of one who is justified by faith. He, it's, it's rubber to the road, so to speak, with his example. And it's it particularly important that Paul does this because he is constantly throughout the book addressing the Jew-Gentile question and how God wants that to work in the church, but also how we should view that. That God views the entire human race as either Jewish or as Gentiles. Most of us, of course, are Gentiles, maybe every one of us. And we're thankful that the gospel reached us, right? Amen. Amen. So, let's read 4, 17 through, uh, 16 through the end of the chapter, and we'll continue in our study. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. That would be the Gentiles. They didn't, they didn't adhere to the law, but they had the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. And then verse 6 of Hebrews 11 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, that would be God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, some translation says that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. In our study of Romans 4 uh, last week, we we saw that Paul uses Abraham as an example uh, uh, to show that justification is by faith. How to have a right relationship with God, it's based on faith, not by doing your best or by observing religious ordinances or by the principle of law works. It is only by faith that one is declared righteous in the sight of God. Now, if Abraham is the perfect example of that, uh, it is important that we understand something about the nature of his faith. If he's the example of justification by faith, we need to understand the nature of his faith. And in the second half of this chapter, which we just read, Paul reveals that Abraham truly had the kind of faith that gives one a right relationship with God. So what was that faith like? What was it like? What is it that he believed that resulted in him being justified? And that's what this sermon is about. And there's three main points, as you can see, and you're going to fill in your insert. And the first of those main points is that the object of his faith was God. That's verse 17. So the very first thing that Paul tells us about the nature of Abraham's faith is that the object, the object where he placed his faith was in God. That's verse 17 says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now that is the confirmation of what we read in verse 16, that Abraham would become the father of us all. And by all, he doesn't mean every person. He means Jews and Gentiles alike who have faith like him, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. How, how did Abraham receive that promise that he would be the father of us all or the father of many nations? How did, did he actually become the father of many nations? And the answer is the same to both of those similar questions. It was the result of believing what God had promised him, right? Believing what God had promised him. Contrary to what the Jews would have thought, their great forefather was not trusting in his own achievements. He was not trusting in his obedience to what God called him to do, both in leaving Ur of the Chaldees as well as taking his son up on the mount to sacrifice him as God had told him to do. Uh, he was not trusting in those things to make himself right with God. His trust was not in things like that. His trust was in God himself. That's the point that Paul is making. His trust was in God. But here's the question. Is, is simply trusting in God enough? Now, let, let me make it clear that I'm not suggesting that we need to have something added to our faith. It's not faith plus something that ends up making us right with God. What I am asking is this, is it enough to be justified to simply believe in God? Now, are there not thousands or even millions of people who have died believing in God who have gone into eternity only to find out when they stand before God that they are going to be separated from God forever? Do not the scriptures say that the demons believe in God in the book of James? And, and still they are forever doomed along with their leader, Satan, who rebelled against God. The Jews certainly believed in God, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, read your Old Testament. They believed in God. Read your New Testament. They believed in God. And yet Jesus said to them things like this, Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. Thank you, Joel, for having those words up there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, 
Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are people who clearly believed in God. He's talking to the Jewish people. They believed in God. Whether they were the religious leaders, the common people, they believed in God. And yet Jesus says to many, uh, when it comes times for judgment, you're out. You're out. And how about John 8, 43 through 47? Pastor Greg was reading out of John 8 last week, and I'm reading out there this week towards the end of that chapter, Jesus says in verse 43 through 47, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. What? Who's he talking to? Well, if you read back in, in uh, like verse 30, 31, so on, and Pastor Greg pointed that, he's talking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Other people too, but primarily to them. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Who? Their father, the devil. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You are not of God. These are people who believed in God. You are not of God. You should take time, maybe this week, even later today, to, to go to Matthew 23 and read Jesus' Sermon of Woes. They pronounced on the religious leaders people who clearly believed in God, six or seven, depending on what version you have. Um, there's an there's a issue with one of the verses, whether it's in the original manuscripts or not. But it's a sermon on woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And then he just lays it out. And basically, this is the gist of the, his sermon. is like, you look good on the outside, but you are dead, dead, dead on the inside. And you're making anyone who follows you dead as well. You're like a whitewashed tombstone, he says. You're like a filthy cup. You clean the outside of it, but the inside of it has got mold and bacteria in it. And it's like, you believe in God, but you are in terrible shape because you cannot stand before God as righteous. Now, the fact is this. It's not whether you believe in God. It is the God in whom you believe that is critical. Amen. It's the God in whom you believe that is critical. Abraham did not believe in just any God, did he? He did not, for example, believe in the God of his father, Terah, who was an idolater. He did not believe in any of the gods of the, among the people that he sojourned around, the people of the nations there. Abraham believed in the personal God who revealed himself to him and made specific promises to him. He believed in the God of revelation. Right? And we must believe in the God of revelation. The number of ideas of who God is is as numerous as the number of religions that there are in the world. I mean, how many times have you heard people, you've been talking to them and say, well, I believe in God. But you know, as you're talking to them, that they do not believe in the same God in whom you've put your trust. Right? In contrast with the God in whom Abraham put his trust, listen to what some, of the, some others say about the nature of God. This is Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science, by the way. But this is what they write. What is God? God is incorporeal. doesn't have a body, divine, supreme, infinite mind, spirit, soul, principle. God is not a person. Principle and its idea are one. This is one God. God is an impersonal being. God is divine principle. God is infinite mind. Mind is God. 
there can be but one mind because there is but one God. Hmm. Spiritualism, very simple. God is not personal. God is impersonal. Theosophy says we reject the idea of a personal and extra-cosmic and anthropomorphic God. Man is not a God, but God. Hmm. Unity says God is principle, not a person. New Age theology, as it has often uh, been referred to, teaches that God is not a person. God is a universal principle that all men may tap into and be part of, kind of like the whole Star Wars story, The Force Be With You. It, it's, you know, for them, it's simply a matter of reaching one's potential. And their thinking, to be right with God, is to be right with yourself. Well, what's the point I'm making? Well, it, it's this. Paul is not saying that Abraham believed in an impersonal God of principle but in the very personal God of revelation. The object of our faith is absolutely critical. I mean, there are many empty gods in the world that people are trusting in that can never, ever save their souls. The power of faith rests in the strength of the object in which you put your trust. Psalm 115 uh, along with Jeremiah 10 and some other passages in Isaiah. But Psalm 115 describes the difference between trusting in the God of revelation and empty idols. Contrast them. Here's what it says. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Speaking of Israel. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, in contrast, are silver and gold the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do, do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, he calls on Israel. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Now let me try to illustrate. It's a weak illustration, but I want to illustrate the difference between belief in a false God and the belief in the God of Revelation, the one true living God. So I have here a wonderful part of God's creation. Everyone recognizes that, right? It's an egg. We've got two of them. You know, an, an egg is a wonderful thing. It can be used in many delectable foods. And I was thinking of special egg dishes. I mean, you can have scrambled eggs, fried eggs, eggs benedict. Uh, you can have omelets, etc., etc., etc. You could make deviled egg. I personally prefer angeled eggs as opposed to deviled eggs. But the deviled eggs you can make. And you can have egg salad sandwiches and lots of different things that you can do with an egg. You can use it in making cookies and cakes and other pastries. My, my, that sounds good right about now. Well, we have a couple of eggs here, so let's, let's break this one. I don't do the cooking in the house, so I'm not real good at this, but look at that. Now, we're not using the shell. Obviously, we, we use this, right? It's a wonderful thing. You can whip it. You can just put it in a fry pan, etc. You can put sugar in with it, flour. Wonderful things that you can do with it. It's got substance. It's got taste. It also, it's all over my fingers. <laughs> so let's break this other one. It's empty. Like false gods. 
They're hollow imitations of the one true God. They have no substance, no taste. They don't give life. It's a lie. It's a deception. False gods are like that. They're without substance. They're imitations of the one true God. They contain nothing but empty promises, if you will. Abraham didn't believe in a hollow God. He believed in the one true God who does fulfill his promises to his people. And he had given promises to Abraham. Paul focuses next on some of God's attributes that caused Abraham to believe that God would in fact reveal or fulfill his promises. Notice what he says next. That God, he believed that God was the one who gives life to the dead. He is the one who gives life to the dead. No, it's natural to think that that statement is a reference to the fact that God can raise dead people back to life. Uh, that would be incorrect if that's your view of what he is saying here. For a couple of reasons I say that. One, one is because before the time of Abraham or the time of Abraham himself, there were no miraculous raising of people from the dead. That does happen later in the scripture, of course, but not before that. And, uh, but more importantly, it doesn't fit the context to be talking about God raising a dead person back to life. Rather, it is best to understand this as a reference to Abraham's belief that God could give life to his and Sarah's deadness. His and Sarah's deadness. They were incapable of bearing children, our text has said. For he was near 100 and she was near 90. In fact, Sarah had been barren throughout her entire life. And actually, the word that is translated as barren in our text for her womb is actually the term dead. He was dead and her womb was dead. He couldn't produce and she couldn't either. The second thing that he believed about God was that he calls into existence the things that do not exist. And again, now some might think that he's referring to the power of God in creation, Genesis 1. You know, in the beginning, you know, there was nothing and then God created out of nothing everything. And it's like, but that too does not fit the context. It is true that God can do that, but that's not what it's talking about here. It would be best to understand this is Abraham believing that God could bring into existence the son that he had promised to Abraham and Sarah, even though all the evidence pointed against it. Even though he did not yet exist, Isaac, he was real in the plans and purposes of God, and, and he would be born... And Abraham, and, and Abraham believed that, that he would be born and God would bring him forth at just the right time. So, the object of his faith was God. Secondly, the obstacles to his faith were overcome. The obstacles to his faith were overcome. That's verses 18 through 21. Paul moves from a description of the God in whom Abraham believed to a description of the belief that he had itself. I mean, the emphasis on, in these verses is on Abraham's confidence that God would do what he promised, even when all the physical evidence would point to a different outcome. Now, four things, four points I'm going to give you regarding these obstacles and being overcome and why they were in Abraham. The first point is, that Paul makes is that Abraham's faith was coupled with great hope. Abraham's faith was coupled with great hope. The beginning words of verse 18 contain a, a certain tension if you, if you look at it again. In hope he believed against hope. Isn't that a tension? In hope he believed against hope. Abraham believed God's promise against all human hope. Human's hope utmost limit had been reached and passed. Even so, in hope, he believed. He believed against that human hope. He was persuaded that God could fulfill his promise, and so he hoped. 
with confident expectation that God would do what he had said. It was his faith in the nature and character of God that gave him hope. And so it was that he could then become the father of many nations, Paul says. Now, there are really two different kinds of hope in the world, aren't there? There's human hope, which relies on human achievement and often ends in, uh, let's say, disappointment. And there is divine hope, which never fails. It never fails because it depends on God's ability, not human achievement. In Ephesians 2 and verse 12, it refers to people who were born without God and uh, therefore without hope in this world. That was the description of the Gentiles in particular. They were without God and therefore without hope in the world. But Abraham was not without God, and he was not without hope. In the New, in the New Testament, there is, you know, there's a note of certainty to the idea of hope, which is different from the way that we normally use the word, right? Let me give you an example. I could say that uh, each week, I hope that everyone that's coming to, to worship uh, on Sunday morning will show up on time. I hope that will happen. Now, when I say that, I, I mean that I'm pretty certain that that won't happen. I wish that it would. I wish that it would. There's no certainty to my hope at all because human hope relies on other people doing certain things. It takes the participation of others to make it happen. But on the other hand, on the other hand, I have great hope, great confidence, great certainty that when it's time for the Lord to return, to gather his people unto himself, he will be on time. He will be on time. And the reason there is certainty and confidence is because the fulfillment of that hope is based solely on the ability to God, of God to fulfill his purposes and plans which were made before he ever spoke anything into existence. Amen. So the first part, again, is that Abraham's faith was coupled with great hope. I, ho- I hope that we all have divine hope, God hope. If, if you know Christ, you should have that. Second, the second point Paul makes it is Abraham's faith and hope in God was in spite of his circumstances. In spite of his circumstances. That, that's what's stressed by the, the words against hope. He hoped against hope. And then Paul further explains by saying he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness or the deadness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham considered the circumstances of his own body and that of Sarah, Sarah's body, and still he believed. Still he believed. And, and I think we need to understand exactly uh, the circumstances that he faced to fully appreciate the depth of his faith here. Abraham and Sarah had been married a long time. In fact, over 25 years when God told them that Sarah would get pregnant and give birth to a son. Over 25 years. They had been trying for a long time to have a child and that was without any success. And I think it feels like, as you read Genesis, that they had kind of lost hope. That they had kind of lost hope that it would ever happen. And that is why, through Sarah's urging, Abraham had conceived a child with Hagar, Sarah's maid, Ishmael. But when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, God came to Abraham and told him that Sarah would get pregnant and have a son. And both, both Abraham and Sarah, when they were told that, laughed They fell on their face and they laughed. That's just preposterous. Even though Abraham was not a gynecologist, he knew that he was beyond the age of producing and that Sarah's womb was dead. But still, when the promise came, no, 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 no. 
you're going to have a son with Sarah, and you're going to name him Isaac, and I'm going to bless the world through him. When that promise came, Abraham believed God. He believed against hope. So true faith, this is often misunderstood, true faith does not close its eyes off to reality. You know, it, it doesn't. But it is not limited to the best human estimates of what is possible. True faith recognizes that God can work beyond and outside of what is humanly possible. Our faith is not blind, as some people would call it, but rather is informed. It's informed faith based on the character and the nature and the capabilities of God. And that's all based on the inerrancy of the word that he's given us, that it is trustworthy. And it tells us the truth about him. The third point Paul makes about Abraham's faith is that it was constant. Constant. Notice that in verse 19, it said that he did not weaken in faith, right? And then in verse 20, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, those are two interesting statements. He didn't waver in unbelief or weaken in faith. Especially, they're interesting when you read the Genesis account. That's what I want us to consider. In Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham again, and in verses 1 through 14, he tells Abraham, I'm changing your name to he was Abram, changes it to Abram because you're going to be the father of many nations. And you're going to have a son and, you know, uh, I'm going to bless the world through him. And, and by the way, here's the, the sign of the covenant that I'm making with you, circumcision. We talked about that last week. So God told him about the covenant that he was making. And then in verses 15 and 16, he promised that he and Sarah would have a son. And he changed Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah uh, to the princess, right? Then in verse 17 of, of Genesis 17, we read this. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, as though God wasn't hearing him as he spoke to himself. He said to himself, shall child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You, you get it. Doesn't that sound like Abraham was weakening in faith or that he was kind of wavering in unbelief? And how about when he lied um, about Sarah, not informing Abimelech that Sarah was his wife. Instead, he told him that it was his sister. And that led to some issues, right? Or how about this deal with Hagar? You know, they were thinking, I can't have a child. Abraham, you can't produce. I can't produce. So, Maybe God will work a miracle and you can produce, and, but do so with Hagar, my servant. Hmm. So, doesn't that sound like he was wavering? It's like, there must be another way for God to fulfill this promise other than a son born to Sarah and me that we're going to name Isaac. Because they didn't name that son from Hagar and Abraham Isaac. They named him Ishmael. Probably familiar with that. Hmm. So how are we to explain this apparent, you know, contradiction, this difficulty of like he didn't waver in his faith, he didn't weaken in his faith, but you read the text back in Genesis and it's like, ah, it sure sounds like he did to me. Well, the explanation is that Paul's describing Abraham's faith as being constant, right? Constant. Not at not as though there weren't momentary doubts or glitches to his faith. And the reason I say this is not just because I want to, you know, deal with an apparent conflict that says the Bible doesn't really have any conflict, so I better come up with a good explanation of it. You know, no, no. The text is what makes me say this. If we look further in Genesis 17, we would notice that God, after finished making the promise to Abraham and the covenant, and that the covenant would be 
uh, a son born to Abraham and Sarah. God, it says God departed from him. And then in, in, in verse 23, we read this. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those who had been born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. And the point of him circumcising himself and every male in his household on that very same day was the service proof that he believed the covenant that God had made with him. It wasn't saying, I believe that the covenant is fulfilled in Ishmael. It's actually saying, I believe that you're going to give Sarah and I a son. And we'll call him Isaac. So we should understand that it was not Abraham's faith that wavered, but rather it was his understanding of how God would fulfill the promise. There had been an earlier one. He says, okay, I got no son. Maybe I should make my trusted servant. You know, this, this one. No, no. God said no, no. He said no, no to Ishmael as well. He, Abraham didn't quite figure that out very well. He had momentary glitches, but his faith remained constant. And, and the word that's translated as waver, it refers to being divided in one's own thinking. It's like it's got two voices in your head, Right? To say that Abraham didn't waver or grow weak in faith indicates that though he struggled, he struggled with how God would fulfill his promises to him, he was consistently trusting God. He was trusting even though he was struggling. Hmm. I think there's a lesson in that for us. It's not like he kept going back and forth. You know, It's like, well, I don't believe you, God. I believe you, God. No, this can't possibly happen. God, you, you, you're fooling me, right? No, I, I really believe in you. Guys. Not going back and forth. He wasn't divided in his own thinking. He didn't waver. Instead of wavering, Paul says that he grew strong in his faith, right? That's what the verse says. He grew strong in his faith. Now, other versions translate this better than the ESV. They translate it as, he was strengthened in his faith. You notice the difference? He grew strong in his faith. He was strengthened in his faith. You say, well, I hear you saying there's a difference, but I don't know what it is. Well, the difference is in the voice. You see, if Abraham grew strong in his faith, he's producing the strength in his faith. He's doing it. But written in the passive, he was strengthened in his faith indicates that it was God who was strengthening his faith. It's not saying that, that faith took a weak Abraham and made him strong, or that in spite of his circumstances, he convinced himself to be strong, to buck up and, and trust God. Now, Paul is saying that God took a weak Abraham and gave him strength in his faith. And the New Testament is clear that believers' strength, our strength is derivative what does that mean? Well, it means that it comes from God. It's not from within ourselves. We receive it from outside of us. And, of course, that is from God. And, you know, so, like everything else related to our salvation, God is the one producing faith in us and then building that faith more and more. That's what he did with Abraham. The fourth point Paul makes about Abraham's faith is that it, was, it focused on God's ability to perform what he promised. God's ability to perform what he promised. We read there, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So God, or Abraham believed that God's power is always a match for God's promise. God's power is always the match for God's promise. God is able to do whatever he purposes to do. Whatever he plans to do, he will do. And this points out two lessons that Abraham learned, and I think we need to learn as well. One, very simple, that we should focus on the promise of God rather than the problem. We should focus on the promise of God, not the problem. And secondly, we should believe that God is all-powerful. <laughs> That's one of his characteristics, right? He's all-powerful. All He's omnipotent. He can do all that he wants to do. 
So saving faith does not focus on the problem of one's sin, but on the power of God to deliver from sin. Sanctifying faith, you know, does not dwell on the struggle of daily temptations and our failures in those at times, but on the transforming power of God to provide a way of escape to get away from the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God does that. So Abraham's faith was fully assured that the promise of God was going to be fulfilled. And his faith wasn't just coupled with hope and in spite of his circumstances and, and was constant or steadfast. It was also focused on the ability of God to perform what he promised. Now, the third thing about his faith then, the outcome of his faith was righteousness. That's verse 22. Pretty simple. Paul says, quotes again from Genesis 15, 6. We saw that last week. He quoted twice in the first 16 verses, Genesis 15, 6. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why his faith was counted, credited, imputed to him as righteousness. So what is the outcome of the matter? Well, did Abraham receive anything by works of the law or by being religious or being obedient or because he was circumcised? The clear answer is, boy, that wasn't very convincing. Abraham was convinced. You don't sound like it. No, no, he didn't receive anything that way. He received the righteous standing before God, his inheritance and his posterity by faith, through faith. You know, the Jews looked to Abraham as the ultimate example to follow. I mean, that that is clear as you read through the New Testament, particularly in the dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders. Paul is saying that that is exactly what they should do. They should look to Abraham as their ultimate example. And if they really examine his, his life, they should come to the conclusion that all that Abraham received, he received by faith, on the basis of faith. And even that faith was a gift from God. Amen. Okay. Well, how does Paul's, Paul's uh, description of this, how does Abraham, as an example of the pr- uh, principle of justification by faith, relate to us? Well, this is, this is kind of cool as, as a preacher. Oftentimes, I've got to try to come up with ideas on how to apply a passage, right? I can work through the teaching of it, the exposition of it. Sometimes I'm, I feel a little weak. I'm like, how, how can this apply to us? Because it happened so long ago and the circumstances are way different. But, but actually, Paul draws out the application for us in verses 23 through 25. Read that again. But the words, it was counted to him. There's quoting the same verse. We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the story of Abraham and Paul's teaching on him was not written just for Abraham's sake, and it wasn't written when Paul says for us. He's obviously referring to himself, the New Testament era that he's in and all the churches that he's writing to and caring for, but we can understand that's not just for that time period either. It's for all of us. All of us. And and by the way, it's good. And it's not just good reading material. If you're struggling with insomnia, just read the Bible and it'll put you to sleep. Then, you know, that's not what's good about it. It was written that we might fully understand that everyone must be justified before God exactly the same way. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. So we must realize that we too have to believe, not just in, in God, but in the one true God who's revealed himself in his Son and in his word. Our faith must be coupled with hope, not human hope that disappoints, but hope in God who can never let us down. Our faith should be one that overcomes the obstacles that come into our life, and we have them, many of them. Our overcoming faith will, should be constant. It should be steadfast. We may have momentary glitches, 
but it, it, our faith should be constant. And it will focus on the ability to, of God to perform all that he has promised to do. So what is the result of such faith? Well, it's a right standing before God, isn't it? It's a right relationship with God. And it will be, it will be a life that begins and ends with faith, according to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Well, where does it begin? Well, it begins with believing that Jesus Christ, right out of our text, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Did you get that? He was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions, etc., and raised for our justification so that we can have a right relationship with God. And, and what that tells us is that both Christ's death and his resurrection are essential to the work of God to, to bring about salvation from his wrath, salvation from condemnation. So because of our trespasses, God delivered up his own son to death. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Right? He delivered him up, and because of our justification, in other words, in order that our justification, being right with God, could take place, he raised him from the dead. Paul spent an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, to say, if Christ isn't raised, then faith is meaningless. He had to be raised from the dead. When I believe in the, in the sacrifice of Christ. It was a wonderful example, set a moral example and all that, but uh, you know, raised from the dead, come on. Miracles like that don't happen. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we won't either, and we're still in our sins, and we're still condemned, is what Paul teaches. And so because Christ Jesus did rise from the dead, God can justly credit the righteousness of Christ to the account of every ungodly person who puts their trust in him. Last week we saw it. God justifies the ungodly. So let's go back to where we began. Without faith, it is impossible to please God or to have a right relationship with him. For those that draw near to him must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now Abraham had that kind of faith and he received the reward of a right relationship with God. Here's the question. Do you have that kind of faith? I would hope every one of us here has that kind of faith, that we know that we've been made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We've experienced the reward of justification by faith. And if that does fit you, if that is true of you, then, you know, I I keep saying this every week, but I want to say it again, then you ought to give thanks to God. And you ought to give thanks to him because he sought you out. You didn't seek him out. Because he made you realize that you needed a Savior. You were oblivious to your sin, your situation. He made you realize that you needed a Savior. He gave you the gifts of repentance and faith. And then imputed the righteousness of his Son to you and imputed your sin to his Son. And he became the sin bearer. He bore the wrath that we deserve. So if to this point in your life, however, you do not possess a faith like Abraham's, if that does describe anyone here, then I urge you, listen to what God has said today. It's not what I've said, it's what God has said in his word. Listen to it, respond to it, believe in his son, because he is the only savior of sinners. There is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved, other than the name of Jesus Christ. So let me just give you a couple takeaways. A few of them will be questions, but the first one is just a statement. We have to believe that in the God of revelation, not the God of our imagination. We have to believe in the God of revelation, not the God of our imagination. And second, is there doubt in your heart as to whether God will do what you believe he should do for you? Do you believe that God has the ability to give life to what appears to be dead? And I'm not talking about the deadness of your your womb or whether you can produce the seed 
Physically, I'm talking about what has kind of been dying in you. Maybe it's your faith that's been dying or your hope has been dying. Do you believe that he gives life to what appears to be dead? Are you willing to wait for God to bring into existence the things that he has promised? Abraham had to wait a long time. He had to wait a long time. Are you willing to wait? Believers have had to wait 50 years for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. Are we, are we willing to wait in our personal lives? Are we so caught up with everything immediate? God, to prove yourself to me, I need this and I need it now. Three, if you're struggling to have faith in God, could it be that your real problem is that you're focusing more on what others need to do to fulfill your desires rather than trusting that God is able and willing and will always do what he's planned and purposed for you. Where's your focus? Where's your focus? On God or on others? And then lastly, do you tend to focus more on the problem before you or on the promise of God to take care of you? Do you truly believe that God is able? Lord, we are thankful for this word from you today. Not my words. It's not me saying, oh, I I received a word from the Lord today. No, this is your word that's been written down so long and still has absolute importance for us. Because your word is forever. (laughs) So help us, Lord, to give you honor and glory because of what you've done for us through your son. Help us, Lord to be constant in our faith of you. And if, if we've been failing in that, well, then cleanse us from that and, and, and strengthen us, Lord, we pray. Thank you that you wash away our sins because of what Jesus has done for us, not because we are good or religious or just wonderful people. No, it's all because of what Jesus has done. So we give thanks for him, our great Savior. We look forward to his return. That is our great and glorious hope that he would return, and he will in your perfect timing. Until then, help us to be faithful. Thank you for the food that we're going to eat on the other side. Get glory as we enjoy that as well. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.